We've spent a lot of time in this series explaining midterm elections, why they happen, how they work, who runs in them, what shows up on the ballot. And I feel like we got there. You know, midterms crash course accomplished. Why do I feel there's a but in here, Hannah? But our goal, I mean, it's the title of the first episode. Our goal was to convince people that midterms matter. You know, full disclosure, we definitely had an agenda. We were trying to prove a point. Yes, that's true. But midterms do matter. Of course they matter. They can change the course of politics. They change the law. But I'm stuck on that final step. Participation. Showing up to vote. Because midterms are going to happen whether people turn out for them or not. Now, that is actually my least favorite excuse for not voting. Okay, hear me out. We started with the goal of proving the power, right, the worth of this election. And I think we partially felt we needed to do that because a lot of people don't care. And we know that because we can look at voter turnout numbers and see that people just don't show up for the midterms the way they do for presidential elections. Yeah, but this is understandable. When you're voting for the leader of the free world, the largest office in our country, it's bound to bring people out. Voting for the president is huge, and it's in an obvious way. And that's not really the case with smaller local offices that are on your ballot in a midterm. And that fact isn't going away, right? No matter how you gussy them up, the midterms are missing that one crucial thing. Hannah, (laughs) if at this stage you're trying to convince me that midterm elections are not a big deal, I'm not only going to lose it, but I got Dan Casino on speed dial right now. (laughs) Okay, I would not dare try to do that to you, especially not at this point. But all I'm saying is, I think we need more. More what? More of a reason to turn up and to vote on Election Day. You got something? I think I do. Which is good because this is Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today on Civics 101, we're going to turn the focus on you, dear listener, because it isn't the president who makes or breaks an election. It's you. Your five minutes in the voting booth are more than just an exercise in civil participation. Choosing to vote is like saying, hey, look over here. You better listen to me because I have got your job in my hands. Look, I hear you, Hannah, and I don't need convincing. But if we're going to go there with voting, then I have to say there are plenty of people who do show up to vote every year and still feel like legislators ignore them. You are absolutely right. That is the case for a lot of voters. And that's where I want to start, with the frustrating truth about making your voice heard. Speaking up is not just about Election Day. It's a lot of work, and it needs to be happening all the time. One of the problems, I think, with voting is that people think it's a passive action, that you do it every two years, you do it every four years, when in fact it's what you do between elections that actually energize the constituency during a campaign and during an election. That is Cheryl Cucalio, everybody, high school teacher and former member of the California Assembly. And, you know, you'll hear people say, well, I didn't know this was going to happen or I didn't know this was going to be on the ballot. A lot of this is is prepped for years in advance. And so voting is extremely important, but paying attention between voting and applying your civic knowledge between voting is equally as important uh, to get the result. And to me, a good result is one that represents a broad constituency. But what does applying your civic knowledge actually look like? 
I feel we always hear, you know, you got to get involved, but, you know, give me the instruction manual. It means a lot of things. But why don't we start with the obvious, you know, knowing what you're voting for? Because let's be honest, we've all likely encountered an office on the ballot on Election Day that we didn't even know was up for election. Or maybe we didn't even know what that office was. Oh, you're going to make me sick because <laughs> I've seen that so many times, literally. Or, or worse yet, who's running, right? Who's running? All right, we hear stuff along these lines pretty often, right? You know, stay informed, do the research, don't complain if you don't vote, and maybe don't complain if you vote without doing your homework first. And that advice can start to turn into white noise. But Cheryl cares about this. And to be honest, so do I, because you are definitely, not maybe, Nick, definitely electing people and voting on ballot measures that will change your life. Let me jump in here because, look, I know it's not super easy to figure out who and what you're voting for. And I guess, is this what you mean by the work? I've poured over so many ballots, not just from our state, New Hampshire, but from every state in the union. They're all completely different. They all have totally different rules. And it's frankly overwhelming. It is overwhelming and frustrating. And it's my job to research this stuff. But, you know, passivity is easier. Soft focus is easier. And the thing is, I don't have to know. The world will go on rolling without my knowing exactly who I just helped to elect sheriff. But I'd rather just know who it is I'm voting for. That way, I don't wonder if I helped elect somebody who maybe goes against my morals. And luckily, we've got thousands of journalists and analysts around the country clamoring to provide us with that information. I think that people need to be informed. And in order to be informed, they have to look at a variety of sources. If the only place that you're getting your information is off of Facebook or uh, Fox News or MSNBC, you're only getting half of the story. When I see a story come up and I look at the source of the story, I then physically look for other articles that may be done from a different perspective. It takes work. And part of the issue with living in a democracy is you have to be constantly vigilant. I guess if you want the government by and for the people to actually reflect what the people want, then the people have to know how to ask for what they want, how to establish it. It's just, it's such a huge task. I don't feel like any of us can show up on Election Day knowing everything. I think that's completely true. And as Cheryl sees it, you don't have to be an expert in your options. It's important to recognize that you can't know everything. And so for me, if I'm in an area that I'm unfamiliar with, I will call a person that I think is an expert. Or uh, here's the one thing that people don't do enough, and that is call the office of their elected official. If I'm really confused about something and I know the bill was authored in a particular office or I know somebody who's opposed to that in a particular office, I will call up and ask for the information. That's what their job is, is to give you that information. Okay, that's the kind of work you can do before an election, in the month leading up to it, right? That's election day-centric work. But I want to go back to this idea that Cheryl has about civic knowledge, because there's the kind of passivity that means not showing up to vote, and then there's the kind of passivity of not knowing who or what you're voting for before you do show up. But to Cheryl, civic engagement also has to take place in the off-season, like being a baseball fan who pays attention to the draft and then watches spring training. Yeah, except these players are in charge of making law, 
So the stakes are a little higher. Slightly higher, yeah. And the actual lawmaking, the job that we essentially hire our legislature to do, that is what is going on in the offseason. That's what's going on between elections. So the most important part of engaging with your rep or your senator is not the act of voting. Aside from the issue of actually getting to the polls and being sure you're allowed to vote, and we will get to that later, the impact of Election Day itself is largely psychological. But the lawmaking that comes after that, that is what makes your life better or, you know, worse. That is what keeps your schools operating and your streets safe. And it's about approaching democracy. Uh, What's important? What do you need to do before an election? You know, what we're talking about is exactly what illustrates the importance of paying attention between elections, that it really isn't about just sitting around and twiddling your thumbs. I had a student had once that said to me, you know, I don't care about this government stuff, which of course caused me to have, you know, I was hyperventilating. And he said, you know, when is it ever going to make a difference to me? And I sat there a second and I said, you know, right now, probably nothing. I said, but the minute that you want to walk your daughter to school and you recognize that there needs to be a stop sign at the corner, it'll become very important to you. And he looked at me, he said, you're right. We all turn out for the presidential elections and then we kind of trickle out for the midterm elections. And then, you know, the rest of the time, how many of us show up when the work is actually being done? I think there's this sense that our metaphorical microphone only appears in the voting booth and then that the rest of the time we have to sit around and watch things happening to us or at us. But we're allowed to comment on laws before they happen. We're allowed to ask for a stop sign. And the people who can make that stop sign happen and can make you or your kids safe are often the very people up for election or re-election during the midterms. Something that's really easy for me to forget is that you can go online and look up your senator or your state rep or your governor's number and you can just give them a call. You can ask them questions about what's going on in your city. You can tell them that you need that stop sign at the end of your road or tell them you're opposed to a bill or let them know about a problem at your school. Decisions are made by people who show up. And if you only show up on election day, then you're not doing your due diligence and you're likely to be somewhat disconcerted over the outcome, at least in some areas. One of the only obstacles I can foresee for this is uh, it's a matter of numbers. So what if I'm the only one who wants that stop sign? Or uh, what if my state representative or legislature just doesn't seem to care? I mean, that's definitely something that happens. But... It all comes back to voting. If you turn out to the polls and people who share your beliefs turn out alongside you, then you've established that broad constituency that Cheryl was talking about earlier. For example, let's say you're a 47-year-old Wisconsinite who loves the color green and loves swing sets and believes in unionized playground companies. You want the playground union to build a green swing set in every city in the state. I feel very passionately about this. You do! And a lot of people around your age feel the exact same way. Okay, so we're going to be golden, right? If, I, if, if we all want these union-built Kelly Green swing sets, we're going to get them, right? Ah, but let's say only a handful of people in your swing set devoted demographic actually vote. Okay, that's not great. No, it's not great. 
Because the thing is, it doesn't really matter if you all feverishly desire to see union-built green swing sets dotting the Wisconsin landscape if you don't vote. Your legislators pay attention to those who show up to the polls. If your demographic does not, why should they pay attention to what you want in the meantime? That's pretty dark. That's politics, my friend. Right now, if young people would vote, if we got the vast majority of students that are 18 years old voting, in California, they could change how we charge for college education. You would all of a sudden have a group of legislators that would be paying, you know, very close attention to this demographic. It's because they don't vote that some of these things are passed. That's crazy. I mean, we don't usually talk about legislation in terms of voter turnout. The idea is that your person either wins or loses and they go about their business of working for you or not. But it sounds like, and tell me if I've got this right, if your demographic turns out in full force, then your demographic's going to get more attention than other demographics, even if you both voted for the same person. Exactly. It's just like Cheryl says. The people who candidates pay attention to are the people who vote in large numbers. So white people vote more than people of color. Older people vote more than younger people. Rich people vote more than poor people. And by the way, as we've mentioned in a couple different episodes, whiter, older, richer tends to also describe the demographic of the people we actually get to vote for. But on the subject of who is turning out to vote, our country, by and large, makes it way easier for that white, wealthy, older demographic to vote. Which brings me to my next point, the point Cheryl made about college-aged voters not turning out. You cannot boil that down to young people being lazy or something. So, uh, you know, you're, you're in your parents' home, you're going off to college, you change residences how many times while you're in college for four years or in training or wherever else you go uh, to become an adult. You forget to register. Uh, and then you can't decide. Are you going to vote in the city that you're going to college in, or are you going to vote in the town that you came from? You have to make that decision. In some states, they make it very difficult for people to vote by mail. So if you are going to college in, um, you know, North Carolina specifically had a rule about this or a law about this not too long ago, that they didn't want students voting in the college uh, cities that they live in, But you're not going to drive home to vote on a Tuesday. So you were basically taking away their right to vote unless you allowed them to vote absentee. I mean, they've changed that law now, but it is a way to suppress voter participation by making it difficult to register and making it difficult to change your registration. Now, I do want to say the people who work on tightening voter registration access say they're doing it to prevent voter fraud. But the de facto result of this is that there are laws all over the country that make it tricky for college kids to vote, for people of color to vote, for lower income people to vote, for trans people to vote. You know, the voter ID requirements uh, can be very burdensome to poor individuals, to people of color, to the elderly who don't often have the ability to update ID records or pay the fees that the state requires to have photo IDs, for example. This is Edgar Saldivar. He's a senior staff attorney at the ACLU in Texas. And Edgar makes clear that although these laws do not explicitly block minorities from voting, they do, in some cases, make it more difficult. There are numerous ways that state legislatures have made it uh, burdensome, difficult, 
or sometimes impossible to cast a ballot for individuals who are eligible to vote. And rather than expanding access to the ballot, um, what we've seen is a trend to make voting much harder rather than easier. And it's not just registration that poses a problem. A polling place can be moved at the last minute, or maybe you show up and you find your name has been purged from the voter roll. Right. So a voter roll essentially is a book listing all the persons that are registered to vote in a particular precinct. Now, Edgar says that there are a lot of ways a person's name might be purged from the rolls in a city or state. Maybe you've moved or you've been incarcerated or become mentally incapacitated. All of these, he says, are lawful reasons to purge someone from the voter roll. However, I've read tons of articles, specifically in the last 10 years, about people who are definitely eligible to vote and they show up and they're told, nope, sorry, you're not on the list. Yeah, that does happen. Some states have taken sort of overly aggressive efforts to purge voters and oftentimes voters who are eligible to vote or there may be some kind of administrative mistake that causes it, but... You know, when they go vote, they, they realize that they're not on the voter rolls. So it sounds like you got to have your rights down pat before you even go to your voting station. That's exactly it. Edgar says that if you are eligible to vote, meaning you're a U.S. citizen, you'll be 18 on the day of the election, you're a resident of the state, county, and district where you are casting your ballot, and you are not in prison or on parole for a felony conviction— then it is your constitutional right to vote. But what if your attempt is thwarted? What if you know that you're eligible to vote, you've waited in line for a few hours, you show up and they say, buzz off, buddy, you're not on the voter rolls? Okay, first and foremost, what you have to do is ask for a provisional ballot and a receipt. If you ask for this provisional ballot, it is required by law that they give it to you. And then after the fact, they will assess on a case-by-case basis whether or not your vote is valid. And then if you have any other problems because things do crop up, you can call this number. It's 866-OUR-VOTE. So that's 866-687-8683. They're a nonpartisan election protection coalition. They're national. They'll know what to do. But let me just give you a specific example, right? So a lot of trans rights groups are trying to look out for people who might be denied at the polls. The ACLU of New Hampshire, for instance, has put together a fact sheet explaining that, yes, if you have changed your name, you need to re-register under that name. However, if, for example, your ID appears to show someone of a different gender, you cannot be denied the right to vote. All right. Come prepared. Maybe even write these things down before you go just to be on the safe side. But still, I can totally see myself being intimidated by the prospect of being denied a ballot, even if I know my rights. Yeah, in a case like that, it can be worth a quick Internet search to figure out if there's an Election Day carpool program near you that can offer support. In Tennessee, for example, there's even a rideshare app for the LGBTQ community in Chattanooga. It helps people get to the polls. And you know what, Nick? If all else fails, you can always call your attorney general and verify your right to vote. And you can do that right at the polling place. Can I check in for a minute here? Sure. So we started this episode with you saying you're going to give people just one more reason to turn out on Election Day for midterms. And you've given us a couple and some how-tos. Okay, good. That is what I was going for. But I think there's one big thing missing, actually. Oy. People who can't vote. 
yet. Young people. People who are going to be able to vote in the future, but just don't have that constitutional right yet in their lives. So many of the laws, so many of the laws that we make in this country have to do with those people, but they don't get a say. Or do they? Do they? Is this a trick? (laughs) I mean... I say they do. I say young people are instrumental to affecting change. All right, go on. Okay, point number one, and please bear with me on this one. Young people are the future. Oh, Hannah. (laughs) Is everybody rolling their eyes out there? But it's true. So I think it's important for young people to realize that they have a lot of power and they're actually exercising it. This is Peter Levine. He's the academic dean at the Tufts University Tisch College of Civic Life. They're a very big voting bloc. They are going to run the country, whatever happens, in 15, 20, 25 years. So the skills that they learn now for running the country are really important, whatever happens. The way that they vote does determine the outcome of elections, even if they don't vote at the numbers they should. So they do swing elections. So they are actually exercising power. So don't buy the hype that they're just disengaged. Some of them are, but some of them aren't. Still, he's talking about the young vote. What about the young non-vote? So Peter has been doing research on civic engagement of people from kindergarten through senior year of high school, and he's been doing it for over a decade now. So he knows that, first of all, if you learn about voting when you're young, you can be a good voter by the time you actually get there. So the pattern in America is that people gradually become voters each decade until people get into their 80s. They vote at a higher rate, and it seems that people sort of overcome the barriers. They learn how to do it. They tune into some issues and get an idea who they're going to vote for. And once they do that, they're much more likely to vote again. So you could say voting is habit forming. And for the very youngest, the habit has only formed for about one in five in, in midterm elections. All right. So getting the habit of being a voter before you're actually a voter. Yeah, but that isn't it. You know, you can actually do something long before you're a member of the electorate. For one thing, what is more compelling, more sympathetic than a young person demanding, say, justice? or support. And what is more disappointing than a legislator who ignores that young person's call? Not to get all cynical about this, but, you know, it's good PR to pay attention to young people. So even if you don't have the vote, you can work in other domains. But then the other thing is you can influence older people have the vote. So uh, certainly the Parkland students are demonstrating that you can have a big influence on voters, even if you're too young to vote yourself. What about this idea that Cheryl Cook Callio talked about, that civic engagement is about what happens between the elections? Like swaying legislators is less about voting day than it is about how you get at them when things are in session. Is there a way for underage people to get their say? This is one major thing that Peter kept coming back to. Civics is not limited to government, and exercising your voice isn't limited to being of voter age. So you can change the world in lots of ways, and that that opens up a whole range of things you can do. One thing is they're in other institutions and communities apart from the government, the ones that the government runs. They're in a school, they're in a neighborhood, they might be in a religious congregation, they're in a family, and all of those institutions can be changed. So you can, if you can't change uh, the law through voting, you can might be able to change your, your school's policies through talking to the administration of the schools. So those things that aren't quite law, like let's say you're suspended for something that you think is unjust, you can go to the mattresses over something like that. You can disagree with policy and you can make people listen to you about it. 
long before you get to actually vote for anything. Yeah, and you can work for politicians too. You can volunteer, you can show up at rallies, offer feedback. Like Bakari Seller said, eat cold pizza in a church basement. Yeah. You can make it so by the time you might have to deal with the challenge to your right to vote, you know your rights better than anybody because you've been preparing for this your whole life. I mean, my big takeaway from all of this is that the lack of voter turnout is this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. They say young people don't vote, and so young people don't get attention from legislators, and so they feel disenfranchised. And that literally disenfranchises them. They then don't vote. The same goes for any group of people who feel like they're on the outs. So I guess the best medicine is to prove those numbers wrong. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Per usual, we're going to end this episode on the story of an historic midterm. Nick, do you have one for us? I sure do. All right. This one. (laughs) Go vote, damn it. The truth is, we are winning. We're starting to win a lot, you have to say. The brand new CNN poll out this morning shows that independent voters breaking for Democrats in this year's midterms, 53 to 39 percent. million Floridians have already voted. That already puts us past early voting numbers from the last midterm elections back in 2014. If you are uh, a young voter and you are undecided about whether you want to participate in these midterm elections, do you think that moves The congressional election has solidified its status as a coast-to-coast battle for the House, with both this President Trump and former President Barack Obama. Yes. Yes. Every person out here this evening changed America tonight. Yes. Hannah, it brings me extreme sadness to say that we are at the end of this midterm edition series. But great joy to have completed it. That's right. And we have another thing already in the hopper. Stay tuned. We have an amazing series coming up. We want to thank all of the people we interviewed for this series, and there are many, and they are wonderful. That includes Keith Hip Hughes, Cheryl Cook Callio, who we used in every single episode, uh, Bakari Sellers, Dan the Six-Fingered Man Casino, Andy E. Bush, Barry Burden, independent candidate Miley Foster, the team at Midpod, oh, Heather Atwood and Nisi Panetta. Special thanks also to Dylan Scott, Ryan Williams, Leah Askarinam, Jeff Stigler, our sheriff candidate, Andy Wilson, Justin LeBlanc, Edgar Saldivar, Peter Levine, Guy Marzarati, and Tim Iman. Today's episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Our team includes Ben Henry and Jackie Helbert. Maureen McMurray has an I Voted tattoo instead of a sticker. Music in today's episode was by Quinces, Moreira, Azora, Broke for Free, and Blue Dot Sessions. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.